We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which Plant Heroes was recorded, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to Plant Heroes. Before we get underway, a quick caveat. Due to COVID, some of these interviews have had to be recorded remotely. The audio therefore varies, which isn't great, but what is amazing is the story I'm about to share with you. They said, would you like to? I just said, yes, with five billion explanation marks. <laughs> Working on the wall of my pine is, is any botanist's or ecologist's dream. I was trying to explain it to someone recently, and I, I was saying, you know, for you animal people, it's like somebody saying, would you like to go and watch a panda give birth or something? Like, I don't know what the equivalent is, but there is nothing, there is nothing better if someone asks you to jump for the wall of my pine you just you don't even ask how how high you just start jumping you know Liza put a smile upon your face I want to see you glow so let your rest and show amongst the people welcome to plant heroes I'm Chantelle and I'm here to bring you stories from around Australia about people using the last resort action translocation to save our rarest plant species you might already know a lot about the Walmai pine, but trust me, for a species with a lifespan of over a thousand years, there is plenty of time for a few twists and at least one catastrophic fire season. We won't be recapping the Walmai history. Instead, this is a story about latest efforts to save this species, which until 2020 have, like the location of the groves, stayed very, very secret. They're so close to extinction. You know, if you if you could see the biggest sites, you you would walk past it in thirty seconds. Like it's it's absolutely tiny. And um, to think to think about that, like how how close they are to disappearing, despite how old those individuals are and how old that lineage is, is um, it's 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 quite. Um, it's quite confronting. That's Baron McKenzie. He's just spent two frantic years working with a dedicated Wollamai recovery team to create two new translocated populations of the pine, based on the learnings of an early 2012 trial. If the team gets it right, the populations that they're creating today will continue to grow for hundreds or even thousands of years. And this amazing species that once shared the earth with the dinosaurs will stay wild. But before we jump into Baron's experience, let's take a moment to get a feel for what it's like to visit those secret groves deep in Wollamai National Park. Well, so first off, you'd be terribly hot and sweaty and scratched up because it would have taken you a while to get there. And then you would dip below the rainforest canopy and you'd be so relieved because it's cooler and you're out of the sun. And you can hear the trickle of the creek um, so you can fill up your water bottle, which is great. The leaves are always deep, making a crunching sound underneath your boots, but you're also stepping really carefully because it is so special. You're following an established track that we always follow once we're in there so that we don't spread 
Phytophthora, you probably, one of the main smells you can smell is methylated spirits um, because you'll be covered in that because we have to stop every few metres and spray down with methylated spirits so we don't spread Phytophthora. The first tree that you see and you could easily walk past if you didn't know it was there is a tiny little seedling growing out of the base of one of the rainforest trees and it's a spindly little seedling about half a meter tall and no thicker than a pencil and then you get down into the grove and there are only a couple of trees but they're they're massive and multi-stemmed with the cocoa pops bark it's incredibly special and it always takes your breath away when when you see see that it's, it's also incredibly dark down there. It's cold, you've now got your puffer jacket on. You can smell leaf litter and creek and methylated spirits. And then once you pass those couple of trees, you are um, in what I would describe as the morning tea spot beside the creek. And then you can look up and you'll see the Wallamai pines growing on the ledges above you. My name's Heidi Zimmer, I am an ecologist and I did my PhD on the Wallamai Pine and now I work in the science division of the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment in New South Wales. The Wallamai Pine is a critically endangered tree, it's a conifer, it's part of the Araceae family so people might know the Norfolk Island Pine or the Monkey Puzzle Pine, it's related to those and it was discovered in 1994 by David Noble, an off-duty ranger who was walking in the Blue Mountains and found something that looked a bit different and it ended up being a new species that made world news headlines, which was pretty exciting. The other thing you may or may not know about the pine, as it's fondly called, is that it disappeared from the fossil record around two million years ago. Scientists aren't even sure how old they can get. Estimates are at least a thousand years but possibly several, because unlike potted plants you might know, the wild plants have this unique coppicing growth, and just one of the trunks has been aged to four to five hundred years. But the base underneath that connects all those trunks? No one knows exactly how old that is. It's a typical rainforest tree in that it maintains a juvenile more well, juvenile bank full stop and so um, seedlings recruit and then they sit and wait you know they're about sort of between five and 30 centimeters high and they wait and wait and then eventually there'll be a canopy open and opening and they'll shoot up that's that's what we think happens although we haven't seen it happen um the juvenile bank that is there or, or was there before the fire suggests that that might be what's happening you heard it massive fires in 2019 2020 did affect the wild population and the translocated sites. But before we get to that, where does translocation actually fit into this? I obviously can't visit the wild sites, but Heidi did take me to the first ever translocation site, one that she set up in 2012, which was also affected by the 2019-2020 mega blaze. It's really cold and really windy. And while we were down there, shivering. I asked her why the team decided that translocation was the right conservation choice. We're lucky with the Wallamai pine in that it exists in a protected area um, 
from your normal human threats like logging and illegal collection to a greater extent than most other threatened species. However, there are pervasive or what you might call difficult to manage threats and the main ones are fire, disease and climate change and the disease is Phytophthora and once it gets into the plants it kind of makes them go all floppy and brown and, and then they die. Those three things are, are not things that are easily managed in situ. When threats to the wild population can't be managed in situ and a single event can destroy the entire known population, conservation choices become pretty limited. One option is to rely on ex situ populations. That is collections held in institutions like the Botanic Gardens, which, yeah, preserve the genetic stock of the 60 known adult plants. But then we lose something pretty unique in our world and resign it to a living museum. I want to caveat straight out that translocation was decided on as the last best option. Here's Heidi again. Uh, when we first started the project, we were hoping to find out the best way to establish wallamai pines in the wild. So some of the earlier research in my PhD had shown, for example, that wallamai pines grow much better at medium levels of light, so about 20% of full sunlight. And this was very different to what the understory in the wild Wallamai pine sites were, which was just about 1% or 2% of full light. And so we didn't know, like, should we be emulating what they experience in the wild or should we be emulating the conditions in which they grow well in the nursery? And so we developed the translocation with the express aim of planting out along a light gradient to find out where they did best. And like most projects, what Heidi set out to determine didn't end up being the interesting part of the work. It ended up being more to do with how the plants were treated before they made it to site. Because plants were really hard to source, she took what she could get, a mixed lollybag assortment of wallamites. Some from the Australian Botanic Garden in Mount Annan, who've grown the plants for all the translocations, and some from a commercial supplier. Those did respond differently and have responded differently over time. They're best described as <coughs> being hardened. Um, they hadn't been kept in as nice conditions as the ones from Australian Botanic Garden. They had two different growth trajectories over time. Quite a few of the Mount Annan plants died in the first winter. So um, they died from Botryosphera, which is something that infects plants that are stressed. And we presume that the plants were a little bit too soft when they went in, so not that well hardened off or that has definitely been a learning for future translocations that the plants really need to be well hardened off which means put in difficult conditions temperatures that they don't like with less water than they like um, so their survivorship is better. The other key learning which has really informed a 2019 round of translocations was the size of the plants. So the plants that I planted out ranged in size from about 15 centimetres to well over a metre and I spread them out across the light gradient so there were small and large ones um, in each in highlight gaps and in, in low light areas. We had to heave some giant heavy pots including trees that were more than a metre tall from where we were able to park the cars down a steep deep hill um, and into a canyon slash gully 
and it was an extremely difficult week um, of work and like I think we started off with a dozen people on the first day and then on the second day about five people showed up because it was just it was such hard work but once we kind of got into a good rhythm you know there were people sort of being competitive about how efficiently they could move plants or how many plants they could plant and there was people wandering around with plants putting them in weird places and me having to sort of be in five places at once in relatively dense rainforest playing Marco Polo to try and find people in the undergrowth there was a real sense of camaraderie down there and I think everyone who was a part of it will remember it forever as one of the hardest weeks of work that they've ever done so it was crazy but it was it was a lot of fun too You know, you just, you could not do a remote translocation using 200 mil pot size, whereas we use some cells in our propagation called Heiko trays, and each one has like 40 little thumb-sized plugs in it, and you could carry 40, just like that. You could probably come up with a way to double stack them in a backpack. I'm Ian Allen. I'm the supervisor of natural areas and arboriculture at the Blue Mountain Botanic Garden. Ian's got a pretty cool role. He's currently helping manage the plants translocated in 2012 by Heidi, but he also used his expertise to assist in the two new 2019 translocations into the very remote wilderness of Wollamai National Park. We've learned a lot about plant quality and growing stock for long-term viability. You know, with a small shrub, it might not be so important as to how stable it is in the ground or, you know, if it's a bit root bound and it goes in the ground, it'll limit its growth. But with a tree that becomes far more amplified as the tree grows. So as it grows, if it's root bound, it will strangle itself. It'll starve itself of resources just by growing and girdling itself to death. Whereas there's been a lot of scientific projects that if they're a lab or a nursery based trial, they're, they're concerned for a couple of years and then that stock either gets given to the botanic gardens and put in the ground somewhere or it goes in the bin. The ability for a small plant that's a forestry tube size or the even smaller sizes, we use things like Heiko cells, which are different nursery containers that are almost thumb sized. And if you can put a plant in the ground that early, those plants adapt far quicker than even a 200 millimetre pot size and they will catch up and surpass the bigger plant within a couple of years. The two new 2019 translocations were based on the learnings of Heidi's work. Plants were smaller, around 50 centimetres tall, and they were even aged, so no lolly bags. They were grown in 90 millimetre pots, and then they were planted out along a vegetation gradient, from the rainforest to the sclerophyll, and across gradients in light, soil moisture, and critically, flammability, or fire risk. The project was overseen by the recovery team, but led by Barrett McKenzie, who you met earlier. And if you think Heidi's translocation sounded tough, take a listen to Baron's experience. Uh, it was intense. So we were out there for essentially, what was that, 22, 25 days nonstop. And it was winter, start of winter. Having a campfire would leave too much of an impact on the site, so we weren't allowed one. <laughs> <laughs> and we're wet 
and shivering. It was getting below or close to zero. And it got so cold by about 7 p.m. that we would often get into our sleeping bags. It was just too cold to talk to each other. Um, we weren't allowed to sleep in tents because that would have an impact on the vegetation. So we're in hammocks, which was new for almost everybody. We had to uh, take out all our own waste, which I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, you just don't know whether Phytophthora is there. If you detect it, it's there. If you don't detect it, you just haven't detected it. So you have to constantly imagine you're introducing the disease and you're trying to minimise the spread. So you're constantly spraying and juggling gear. And um, yeah, I can't adequately convey how much more difficult that makes things and how much it slows things down. It was It was physically hard work. Like you were constantly wet, dirty, itchy, sweaty, exhausted, uncomfortable. Like it was, I, I couldn't imagine a, a plant translocation being that much harder unless it was, you were in suspension the whole, whole 10 days, like you're in ro on ropes on, on vertical cliffs. It's very different to sites with vehicle access where you can just drive up, unload your plants and, and go home at the end of the day. It's, it's a very different beast. And if somebody was, was thinking about doing a similar translocation or, or a translocation into a similar country, I'd say, let's come and let's have a chat. <laughs> and it wasn't just the actual translocation. Planning had to navigate a really complex legal system. Choosing the sites was literally done through flying visits to check for phytophthora in the soil, to make sure the canyons were large enough, that there was vegetation gradient, that there weren't other threatened species... Sites also had to be as far as possible from habitation to minimise chances of illegal visit. And then there wasn't always the budget to chop it in. Sometimes they had to hike. There was a point where I was literally counting 10 cent increments, trying to save $5 here and $10 there so that we could uh, meet the budget. <laughs> There was one site, we, there was one more site that we wanted to fly and my, my boss said, forget it. So we asked if we could walk. Anyway, it, it took us a few days to get into this site. It was the most awful impenetrable scrub we'd encountered. It looked nothing like that from the air. We thought it would be a cakewalk and it wasn't. There were tiger snakes everywhere. It was about 39 degrees and we were carrying... 30 kilo packs falling over and it was horrific yet that ended up being one of the sites we chose it came back clean by clean barren means there was no phytophthora recorded and don't forget too that after planting the team had to come back and water the plants to try and get them through what would turn out to be an extended drought that meant 18 more days camping on the sites <laughs> Well, it's probably out of everyone's mind now, but it was, we are in drought. We put the plants out and we were heading in at first three weeks after to water the plant and we were carting water manually up the cliffs and up the hill. And, and we did that for three months and then we got some really great rainfall in September. So up to September, it was 100% survival and everything was looking fantastic. And then October... Uh, tiny little fire started and warning has been issued and then we just watched 
over a month as that that hit both the translocation sites. Stretched thin as they tried to confront the Catastrophic fire and rain is in place for great sea fires in the Blue Mountains after a hundred It's burnt through more than 400,000 hectares. That tiny little fire turned into the 2019-2020 mega blaze, which burned over a million hectares of land. The largest Wollomai population, by comparison, occupies around 20 metres of canyon. When you're looking for a translocation site, one of the first things you do is you try to find a site that isn't affected by the same threats as the wild population. It's not affected by the threats that you're trying to avoid. So you have to think about the scale of the threat. This is a little bit funny sitting here now, isn't it? Because we're sitting in the Wollomai Pine translocation site, which was affected by the same fire as the wild populations. To clarify, the wild population, the two new 2019 translocations and the 2012 translocation conducted by Heidi were all impacted by the same event. Yet they were designed in a way that, theoretically, meant that should never happen. When we came back here, I actually couldn't recognise the place. The ground was covered in ash. It looked like a bomb had hit it. About 90% of the Wollomais were entirely blackened, charred, and there are only a couple that had a tiny bit of green left on them. But then I was hopeful that they would recover because in my PhD, we had burnt Wollomai pines and we burnt them pretty badly. And I knew during my PhD, I was freaking out that I'd killed all these Wollomai pines because nothing happened for weeks on end. And then, then they started re-sprouting. And so I was hopeful that the same thing would happen here. Heidi's talking about potted Wollomai in a nursery, not the wild plants. Although I did wonder what temperature she burnt them to. Uh, to 600 degrees, which is, is hot, but I understand that fires around here got hotter. That's the 2012 translocation near Mount Toma. But what about those brand new 2019 translocations deep in Wollomai National Park? Most plants suffered 100% canopy scorch or were consumed entirely. The drought conditions that precipitated the fire season that we had were already impacting the trees and in combination with the fires it looks like at one of the sites we've had uh, up to 96% mortality. The other site we've got about 60 trees that were unburnt, which is great, that's larger than the wild sites, <laughs> much smaller in stature, but interestingly the part of the translocation design that was about fire risk, that was borne out. The, the sites we thought were highest risk, that's where we saw plants completely consumed and, and moving down that risk gradient, we saw plants retaining canopies and then eventually being unburnt. So some translocated plants are recovering and the fires have afforded a really good opportunity to learn how to plan future translocations for any species which occurs in fire-prone landscapes. But what about the wild sites? I won't go into too much detail because that was covered by the media, but unlike the translocated sites, there was a huge effort to try and conserve those ancient trees. Shortly before the, the fires uh, reached the wild sites, a small team went in to establish a remote area irrigation system uh, to moisten the, the litter. By increasing fuel moisture, it was hoped that if fire reached the sites, 
it would burn uh, less intensely. Um, in addition to the, the irrigation team, uh, there was an air attack strategy. So they had the large air tankers and very large air tankers dropping retardant lines in strategic locations. The idea is that the retardant slows down the, uh, the fire front as it approaches and takes some of the energy out of it. And also helicopters water bombing the, the fronts. And critical to, to the outcome, one particular remote area firefighter with National Parks and Wildlife Service. He was winched in and immediately after the main fire front had passed and started extinguishing active fire in the site. It's thanks largely to his efforts, in, in particular putting out fires at the bases of, of several large adults, that we didn't lose those, those trees. If he hadn't have done that, we very likely would have had more trunks collapsing from charring. So what does all this mean for the future of the Wollamai? Some plants have been observed re-sprouting, but certainly not all. And that was only after one fire. This species, with a lifespan of millennia, isn't in a rush. And it may take decades to get large enough to reproduce. Knowing the ecology of a species is imperative to planning its conservation. And for a species that might grow a centimetre a year, frequent fire has a very different meaning. Fire isn't always a bad thing. In fact, a lot of the time in Australia, fire is a good thing. Fires are a natural part of the Australian environment. Short interval fires that don't give plants enough time to recover in between are a particular issue. So whether it's resprouting, they don't have the time to gather the resources so they can resprout again, or growing from seed, those plants need to grow up and create new seeds which are ready to fall when the fire comes. So yeah, fire interval is a particular concern. I guess it comes back to that notion of, of re-sprouters being resilient to fire. There's only so much fire they can take and it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. If you, if you keep knocking them back and they don't have time to, to replenish their resources and, and regrow their canopies, they, they eventually die. The same applies to the translocated sites. They're for conservation of the species and they will always be exposed to disturbances like fire. Knowing that a translocation has been successful ultimately means it can sustain itself. With species that occupy disturbance-prone habitats, I think you really need at least two disturbance cycles to see how that translocated population survives before you can say it's a success. It's no good putting plants out and, you know, after 20 or 30 years, they're producing recruits and saying, yeah, we've done it. And then a fire comes through and you figure out they can't actually persist <laughs> in that part of the landscape. So the takeaway from this has been when translocating species, really think about what threats you want to mitigate and if your sites protect from those or how you're going to manage the sites when the inevitable hits. And also plan for species adapted to disturbance to go through those disturbance cycles. Only after they've persisted and kept recruiting could you really consider walking away. But let's forget about practicalities for a moment and remember the magic of this species, for whom all of this is just a blink in their life. And in their persistence, we are connected to a time we can barely imagine. Here's Ian Allen again, who was helping set up the irrigation in the wild site before the fires came through. 
there was actually a period when I was in there where the smoke from the fires dropped right down into the canyon floor pretty much and there was actually some ash falling from the sky and um, that was just bizarre it, it, it just it further added as if as if there was some special effects guy with the smoke machine hiding hiding in the corner and pumping it out through the trees just just to add to the experience of you being in the land before time and you just suddenly think well I'm just this little dot here and everything else goes on and, and you're almost transported into that notion of time that there's a lot that has been written about trees and plants having this different time scale to us and we can't perceive it as humans we don't perceive that time scale but being in that place with all of those that sort of sensory overload it seemed like everything slowed down and that yeah that was pretty special one of those trees must have close to 30 trunks like it's enormous when you stand in the center of it and the entire sky is just pine like it's it's enormous when i i look at mature pine foliage i see a stegosaurus you know <laughs> these huge plates the Wollamai pine as a species will continue to be cultivated and conserved in homes and gardens around the world. Whether or not it can overcome the threats it faces and remain in the wild is unknown. But that hasn't stopped the team from trying. These initial setbacks have informed new translocations based on recent genetic results. But more than that, the team continues because there is an awe generated in knowing that these wild places still exist and this species might continue on somewhere out there and it won't be relegated to a living museum. There's something about connecting with that unfettered environment, like unfettered with the stresses of modern life, that really makes us happy in our souls. And uh, seeing something like the pine in its uh, natural habitat is is very different to seeing it in a zoo you know in a botanic garden behind a, a cage one example i think of anyway is polar bear i've never seen a polar bear and and maybe i won't ever see one but it makes me happy knowing that they're still out there even if the populations are declining that's still more valuable to me that there are some wild polar bears doing their thing not just sitting in zoos with your shadow as the sun it warms your core your blue eyes on the blue sky capture so much more you don't worry about the clouds for the rain is welcome too every morning the sun rises for you every morning the sun rises for you Thanks again for listening to Plant Heroes. I hope what we're producing is helpful for you. I just want to let you know that this was a really hard topic to cover. The volume of information is full on and really encourage you to get in touch with Heidi or Baron or Ian if you have any detailed questions. Um, we obviously couldn't discuss it all. There's been a lot of additional work done in genetics of these species and a heap more experiment. The other thing is, you know, this story is, it can be a bit grim, but there's a lot of fun sides to it too. So before I say goodbye, I want to take you out with a few little fun moments. I also want to remind you our gorgeous song is done by Zoe Elliott. It's so funny, you know, you end up picking up all this weird terminology about things where we're like, yeah, the creek is hot. 
and everyone's like, what the hell are you talking about? And you're like, hot for PC, and they're like, what the hell is PC? Yeah. yeah. What is that? Just Phytophthora uh, cinnamoma. <laughs> and I think it's because it's a tongue twister. And <laughs> this was when Ian stopped to have a pee. <laughs> Some nice, relaxing questions. Could you please tell me? <laughs> to get me in the mood. Yes. <laughs> who you are? What happens in a day for us is of, of so little consequence for those trees. They've got a thousand years to, to get a seedling through. But one of the things that they illustrate is, um, I guess, a, a combination of um, incredible strength in, in their, their sort of majestic stature and the fact that they've persisted on Earth since the age of the dinosaurs and yet despite you know what is obviously some sort of resilience they've they have this inherent fragility that combination of strength and vulnerability that appeals to to me but man it feels weird saying that at work but yeah